Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello and welcome to the first in a two-part special edition of Under the Radar with me, Sean Hughes, and my special guest is uh, John Lloyd. John, thanks again for coming in. Um, for people who don't know you, um, basically, I'll just reel off, like, Spitting Image, Black Adder, QI, there you're... What would you say is your legacy? Not that, you know, your life's over. <laughs> yes, that's a bit alarming. <laughs> um, I don't know. I always say the thing that I'm most uh, proud of that really matters is the fact that I'm still married and I get on with my three kids. Now you're sounding like uh, a Miss World contestant. <laughs> Well, no, it's what I think. It's a much harder job. No, you're job. right. You're it's right. a harder job being a dad than being a television producer, and a television producer is quite hard. So have you all had just the one wife? <laughs> yes. <laughs> round of applause for that. That's My trophy wife. Because I, like, did you watch the, uh, the Arena Did, the Spit and Image documentary? Did you watch it? Yeah, brilliant. Did you brilliant think so? Film. I really did, yeah. See, I thought, because I was really looking forward to it, and mm. I know how important Spit and Image was, but, like, it was kind of quite depressing. Well, it was three old gits, you know, g- going on the train to meet each other. Yeah. But it was it had a poignancy about it, I think. And the thing is, when you see us all young, you know, gee, I was so shocked, Sean. When I saw myself at age 32, I thought, if I'd known I was that good-looking, I'd have slept with more people. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that's... Because uh, it's like... And then you see this, you know, pouchy old guy in the... No, train. stop it. You've actually aged very well. But... But but that's the thing. Like it, it was very kind of morose uh, documentary. It, like, it wasn't necessarily just a three old men. But I don't think they. Uh... But it's uh, the thing is the spitting image was a bittersweet experience. Roger and I said that whenever we hear the signature tune, we feel physically ill. Right. Because it was so frightening, and the hours were so d- dreadful. Yeah. I, w- I worked one series. I worked ninety days in a row with two days off in the middle. And I used to get about three hours sleep a night, you know. And so was that like uh, burning the candle or just work? Well, we worked... Uh, a thing that Roger Law said the other day when we were doing some radio interviews was that we all drank a lot, you know, a lot of lager. Your body can take it then. But we were, so, we were so wired, you know. Yeah. We were so high on the energy that nobody got drunk. That was the extraordinary thing. Yeah, I know what you mean. So... So, like, initially, you went into the... Uh, like, you, you stopped university and went straight to the BBC in a very low down the ladder. Well, actually, n- not really. It, in the sense, I was the lowest of the lowest as a writer, you know. Yeah, earning always still seen as a a week. So what were you writing on then? Well, I tried, tried a bit of everything, sort of Kenneth Williams, always sort of hung around weekending, you know, try and get one-liners on weekend, which is a topical late-night show. So you wrote for Kenneth Williams? I did. I think I did get one line, and the two Ronnies, I, 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 I got... I, I wouldn't go on about that. We've <laughs> talked about some great stuff. Right um, my dad used to love the two Ronnies. So, you know, when you talk about hearing the theme tune to Spit and when I hear the two Ronnies, I, I, I felt like I was imprisoned because yeah, yeah. as a kid, you have to watch what your parents... I yeah. could have went into another room, but I wasn't inclined. So I'd just be there spitefully watching the two Ronnies. And it's, there, it's my problem, not the two Ronnies. They were very good, but I have to use your expression very bittersweet memories yeah. of the two Ronnies and I, I, I used to because I don't like pun kind of humour and they did a lot of that yeah it's just that technically it, it's very good you know I mean extremely well crafted work you don't really get that stuff anymore I'm sorry to say but uh, I mean there's still funny stuff about but it tends to be kind of off the cuff and 
you have this stuff, comedy drama, you know, which yeah. is yeah, it's sort of quite funny. Well, no, whenever it's there's, there's two bad buzzwords. What happened to you, Sean? Where uh, are you? Why here with you, you on television. They, they have no. Apparently, I'm seen as uh, defunct now. You know, but I'm, this is it, this is the the thing that you know I bang on about this all the time. I haven't sold a programme in ten years. You know? And have you been trying? Yeah, we tried for about five years at, at QI. We had some very fantastic ideas. Yeah, it's Stephen Fry in it. Right. No, no, it's an animated science series. Is Alan Davis part? Oh, no, no, it's frightening, that, isn't it? You know, it? They, they, want, they want to... The, the idea is that if... Because commissioners are always looking at what's gone before. It's really blinded, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. And, and so people like you and I is... It's either we want to do something totally different. Well, how would we know whether you could do that? Or you want to do something very similar and they go well it's sort of been done QI, well, I see. this isn't like uh, this isn't sour grapes but I think if you or I came up for an idea and gave it to the BBC they, they'd probably reject it but if two 20 year olds yeah. came up with the exact same idea they might well go for it I think that's right and um but the, this has to be changed, Sean. I'm going to draw my sword out of the scabbard and say... Well, I'm with you, bro. We, well, I think we all are. I mean, I think producers, editors, cameramen, comics, you know, um, writers of drama, um, documentary makers, everybody's really pissed off now. Because when you were saying comedy drama, like, it is a bit like romantic comedy. It means they're neither dramatic or, or yeah, funny. Absolutely. Or I'm afraid. Yeah. It's, it's, it's kind of buzzwords for blandness, really. Yeah, and, and the thing that's missing in telly today is joy, you know, where you go, whoa! And that's what Spitting Image had, even though it was very naughty and sometimes very rude. You felt, afterwards, you felt, it's okay to be alive, you know. But how did it come about, then? Because, so, you were there as a writer, and then all of a sudden, like, it was for ITV, so you jumped ship. Yeah, well, I, I was five years in radio, so I started wanting to be a writer and a performer. I was actually, we had a series... Um, from Footlights, uh, called Oh No It Isn't, that ran for six episodes that I was actually in. Then it was sort of, all right, and then... Did you I, think it was brilliant at the time, though? No, I didn't. I didn't think the other people really pulled their weight. I sort of wrote a lot of it myself. And then they gave me a job as a producer, which uh, so I was completely baffled. I had no idea why they wanted to but that hire a, me. that's an odd thing to do if you're a writer-performer. Isn't it a natural thing to go, oh, let John produce the next thing, then? I... I I don't know. It seemed a very odd thing to me. I'd never directed anything in my life, you know, or producing. I didn't even know what it was. Um, and I suppose I would have gone on, I think, as a performer, but there was no mechanism to do it. You know, you yeah. couldn't be a stand-up at 22 in London with a university education. It was unheard of. You could be a writer. The Pythons, for example... You know, apart from Clee, spent sort of years working on things like Doctor in the House, you know, doing sitcoms mm. behind the scenes. Um, and I used to put on reviews at the Bush, um, you know, play to 14 people. Uh, and you couldn't just, there, weren't, there were no comedy clubs, you know. Well, even had the alternative circuit not started? No, no, that didn't start till late 70s, probably 78, 79. So that must have felt very... Well, I guess, like, you know, the 70s was a bit like that, you know, there was just no forward thinking. Like, I think, you know, to be fair, punk started the whole thing. Actually, to be perfectly frank, the 70s was a brilliant decade. It was a great decade to be young in, because you've got punk, the, the face started, you've got alternative comedy. But that's comedy. right at the end of the 70s, though. Yeah, but I suppose, yeah, I suppose... 
The early 70s John was walkie-talkies and CB radios. You're right. I'd forgotten that bit. And uh, free and yes and prog rock. <laughs> You're right. Yeah, it's absolutely so true. It was it was like 78 <laughs> things. And I think that it was because, on, yeah. uh, like, weirdly... Um, it, like I love when you, uh, I used to love those uh, programs where they look at the seventies and look at the eighties. Because when they give you that overview, where Thatcher, uh, against her own will, brought massive changes culture uh, to this country culturally because people started fighting against her. She was the first one, and you know the miners' strike with the uh, death of industry seemed to get everyone going. And when they tried to kill the unions, people kind of all of a sudden started. Uh, I think it was all the, the bin strikes, really, when they stopped collecting litter in London, just seemed to start a cultural revolution. Well, it, w- it was um, a very strange thing, that late 70s thing, because the, the country was falling apart at the seams. Now one sees it. You know, nothing could move, and the mm. government seemed to have no power. The place was a mess, really. And I remember when Mrs. Satch was elected in 79, thinking there's going to be a revolution because people won't stand for this sudden change of things. And it was extraordinary. And they, it nearly happened, of course, in the early 80s, all those riots. Mm. It looked like London was burning. I remember going up to see a girlfriend in North London, coming out the tube in sort of somewhere like Seven Sisters, and the, the streets were full of black kids and big, fat, white policemen from Kent lining the roads, you know. And Just I, as a day-to-day? It was, it was just an, an ordinary evening, yeah. uh, and, uh, and so I set off uh, round a back street, and I was actually cornered by about 20 teenage black girls and sort of, you know, sort of poking you and all that kind of stuff. It was really, really well, like alarming. wanting just to... Just to, you know, not that we're going to kill me or anything, but just kind of, you what know, What are you doing around here? Yeah, yeah, who are you, what are you doing, all that stuff. It was quite. It was quite alarming, and I, you suddenly. I think you gave that girl the flick. No, it was. Um, and then Mrs. Thatcher comes in and starts throwing her weight about, and I thought this is the whole place is going to blow up. It's. Um, but were you quite? Did were you very left wing? Were you involved in politics at the time? No, no, I'd never. I'm a. I'm a floating voter. I'm. A, um, you know, I, I. I've never joined a party or anything like that. I was left wing at school because a repressive public school in the 60s was a complete nightmare and you thought, this has got to go, this system is terrible. And that's still there though, isn't it? It's not the same. I mean, the, the public schools are putting stuff back now. They are getting involved in all the local comprehensives and doing exchange schemes and building new schools and starting academies. And they're not as violent. They're not violent at all in the way they were. The, the physical violence was, was pretty awful. But so I came out of school pretty angry and pretty left-wing and in my gap year because my dad was in the navy i didn't want to go traveling i'd done that all my life so i was a builder in essex i got a job as a t-boy with a local jobbing builder and i spent a year with these all these blokes you know chippies and brickies and uh, uh you know essex geezers and they were a brilliant bunch of guys they were all um, did they accept you or was there a lot well of- at, at the beginning a lot of teasing went on but the thing what, is what did they tease you about just your accent yeah stuff? accent and mainly about being a lefty and I lost every argument I ever had with those blokes. They were just so because you were outnumbered, or but they were just—they were—they were classic working-class Tories. Yeah. You know, you know, work hard. You know, uh, people are you know, lefties for people who are lazy and you know shirkers and all that kind of thing. All the stuff you would have heard, Tebby or Mrs. Thatcher. And I, it sort of changed my mind. But were they unionised at the time? 
Now, these are just local blokes. There was, you know, the builder was called Mac, and he was, an, you know, a sort of a geezer with a van and a little bit, you know, had an, his, his so own house. it was cash in hand? Oh, yeah, it was all... And, and another wonderful thing that we're all... And I had long hair, you know, and dirty jeans, and, you know, and I did all the, all the rotten jobs they didn't want to do. And, and you got, we got to be really good friends. I remember being out in the yard of somebody's house once, having a cup mug of tea, and this woman in the kitchen goes, John, is that you? Oh, John, darling, you must come in and have tea with me. So, so I had to go and sit in the kitchen, all these guys pointing at me through the window. Oh, was this a, a proper teacup? A friend of your parents? Or yeah, yeah. It was wow. a, it was so, yeah, you must have got a lot of stick from that. Yeah, but it's... I, I tell you what, Sean, this, this is a, probably a very odd thing to say, but I've been thinking about this recently, is that I'm unusual in my kind of class and background in that I'm not frightened of working-class blokes, you know, because yeah. I was one. And and so I don't have a thing that a, a lot of people like in my sort of area have sort of never been out of their own house. Do you know what I mean? They didn't yeah, know any yeah. working class people uh, apart from their mother's cleaner, you know. And that's been it's been good, and it's a great thing for a broadcaster because that taught me that everybody is smart. You know, they may not be very well informed. They might not have read Proust. But these blokes were really intelligent. You well, know? not all of them, but I, I, I take your point exactly. No, but the generality is class and intelligence have nothing to do with each other. Absolutely. But so, so then, did you still have uh, leanings towards the the arts? When even like was the building thing just a, as I say? Well, it's before I went to university, I, I, okay. I went up to. Again, I went to university because of being a lefty at school. I said, I'm going to be a lawyer. I'm going to be a crusading defence attorney. I'm going to defend the, the weak against the strong and fight the big corporations. After two weeks of Roman law, you know, <laughs> God, me, this is impossible. So I, 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 I sort of clocked off. Um, I, I did get a degree. I scraped a very bad third, but I didn't do any work. In law? No, and what I did instead was student journalism, student politics... I wrote the gossip column for the, the student paper, and then I tried a bit of straight acting, ruined a couple of straight plays <laughs> by getting laughs by mistake, and went into comedy. And I discovered, you know, aged, what, 19, 20, that the thing I liked more than anything in the world was writing jokes. And I used to sit up all night, infuriating my girlfriend, you know, typing away at the typewriter and chuckling to myself. And was it, like, because, like, there's writing jokes, mm. and then there's writing about things. Were you always writing about things, or would you be happy just to write a joke? No, no, I, I used to just write silly things. It, to be in Footlights, the rule was, because was, there was a little bit of sexism uh, back then in the, in the early 70s, as you can imagine. And uh, all the blokes, you couldn't get in the Footlights unless you wrote your own stuff. The girls, it was all right. They could get in because they were either pretty or they could sing or they were, you know, naturally funny. They didn't have to write their own stuff. So I used to sit write these monologues, you know, um, <laughs> just stupid, stupid so stuff. The, the, yeah, so, like, but, you know, but you know what I mean? I think there's a huge distinction where, like, you know, I, I, I like writing jokes, but then it feels a bit empty if it's not about something. Yes, I agree. And I think that that's... But when you start, you yeah. just have to start somewhere. Yeah, you're learning the craft. And yeah. now, I, I remember saying, really infuriating Stephen Fry years ago, it's difficult to remember when Stephen Fry and Hugh Laurie were just a couple of very tall, talented guys and not particularly anybody. Nice to know them when they were very young, when they were students, in fact. 
and they did a show called Al Fresco that I was the script editor of, and it, the best comedy cast you've ever heard of. Stephen Fry, Hugh Laurie, Ben Elton, Emma Thompson, uh, Robbie Coltrane and Siobhan Redmond. I mean, unbelievable. Yeah. But they were, you know, they were all young and, as people often are, rather cocky. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. And when they did a little bit of Fry and Laurie, and they asked me if I would, you know, come on board and maybe produce it, and I read the stuff and I said, well, it's very clever, this, but it's not about anything. Yeah. I remember Stephen getting really cross. What do you mean? Does everything have to be about, you know, politics and satire? No, it's not politics. So, no, it's not that. It's, no. Got, it's something you do very well, Sean, is it's about the human condition. Yeah. You, there's, um, uh, I come across this brilliant thing the other day. William Faulkner, in his Nobel Prize for Literature acceptance speech, said, the only thing worth writing ab- about is the human heart in conflict with itself. That's that beautiful, fabulous? yeah. See, because like, well, like I, I'll simplify that at all. I think comedy is all about connections, yeah. and that's why I love doing shows, regardless of the numbers I get in. Because I don't even necessarily like the people who are in the audience. We've very little in common. But if I can bring us all together for that two hours, I've done my job. Then, well, I, I would, I'm so with you on that. I think comedy is one of the most important things there is. It's one of the things that defines us as, uh, as human beings, along with curiosity and. My the, my yeah. last show was in Henley, and as you can imagine, they're not my audience, mm. a working-class Dublin kid coming up and telling them what's what. And uh, it was a beautiful gig. And, I, you know, initially, I was, there was a little bit of me going, yeah, fuck you, and you're kind of, you know, you don't care about society. And then I said, oh, look, fair play to you. Is this, if this is how you want to live your life, fair enough. But it was really weird. A woman came up to me afterwards and just went, it was like a lecture with jokes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which, it wasn't that much of a compliment, but I just kind of knew what she meant, because she was, she was expecting... You know, a fellow walked into a pub, I assume, that type of humour. And I guarantee you, like, at the interval, there would have been at least a couple of couples going, well, he's no Michael McIntyre. Yeah. Which, you know, you just... Cause that's I don't... What, you look, this is the thing about comedy. It's a uniter, isn't it? Mm. It's the thing is that you get that human connection. And we're going quite deep stuff here, but it's a bit like those builders. Is There's a surface that people have, their accent, the things they wear, you know, um, the the kind of car they drive, the house they live in, where they go to eat. And underneath, there's the real person, the person who is uh, fearful, who, who, who loves their children, you know, who is, who is angry, who... Uh, who really cares about some things, who is kind. Yeah. And that's what comedy can reach, and it's the, the most wonderful thing. I think particularly so, so many stand-up comics now are, you know, they're, they're no oil paintings, aren't they? I mean, some of them look pretty odd. Well, actually, I think it's gone the other way around, though, I think. Oh, do you think? Well, you it's think got Michael much McIntyre more... Well, no, but it's got much more showbiz. Like, like I think the, yeah. the initial 80s burst, they were all, we were all quite ugly. And then, you know, there's, there's pretty boys doing comedy now, which yeah. was unheard of. Yeah, that's true. You know, in that sense. But it's, um, there's a couple of things, like, you know, and I, 
Stephen Fry, right, I, I know he's really talented, obviously you're very close to him as well, but it's more about the way our society goes, oh, Stephen Fry is the most intelligent man in the world. And it's going back to what we were saying there, is he's not. He, he, he's he's someone who can fa- facilitate lots and lots of facts. I don't think that means intelligence. Well, um, Stephen would oddly say the same thing. Um, perhaps he's being disingenuous, but Stephen says, look, I'm not that much more intelligent than anybody else but what i am special about is i've got a brilliant memory yeah and he can he can marshal his information not just the stuff that we give him but the cement that he brings to qi for example wherever Stephen is in the world and here's a thing about connections between surprising people we did a, a, a heineken export commercial in rome years ago and Stephen, i remember having lunch with the italian crew Stephen is talking in sort of bits of English and bits of Italian to Italian sound men and lighting guys about A, Italian football, B, the films of Fellini, and, you know, he's got, he's got it all. And these yeah. guys are just entranced. Mm. They just completely fell in love with him. And he has got that thing also that he has no side. Stephen will talk to Prince Charles or, you know, a waiter in exactly the same way and give them his full attention. That's a very intriguing thing. But just going back to the intelligence point. But I'm the, talking more about society, like, and our, the education system over here, yeah. and you hit it on the nail there, where you said it's, it's about memory rather than intelligence. That, that's right, and we do, the, the, the education system is, is a complete disaster, and that's the other thing that if I had... Uh, the time I would I would try to change because people think and learn in different ways. You know, my my son is heavily dyslexic, but extraordinarily creative. He thinks with his ears mm. and with his uh, visual sense. You know, so you give him a piece of machine. Even when he was tiny, he couldn't spell. But you give him a machine and you take it to bits and put it back together again without an instruction book. You know. Well, I'm dyslexic uh, and slightly autistic, and mm. that's why I do comedy because I kind of. I can see things differently, and so I come from a skew-with scenario. But you know what? Like, when you're talking about changing the education system, there's this thing I talk about on stage now, and, like, I don't know... I think Michael Gove has possibly watched Chitty Chitty Bang Bang one too many times, and he wants to be the child catcher, because he seems to be on a mission. Like, obviously, this is for him to get much more publicity to hopefully have a go at being, uh, you know, the leader. I, I assume that's Well, it, I think, you know, he's been quoted... Uh, perhaps misquoted about saying that Blackadder shouldn't be taught in schools, yes. you know. Is- See, but th- this is my theory, right? I think from the age of 14, and this goes back to the memory thing as well, because you know when you have books thrust upon you, when you have anything thrust upon you, there's no love there. And I would say for O-levels and A-levels, you say to kids, you pick four books and we will test you on them. Pick four books that you love, rather than being forced to read various things. Well, I'd like to appoint you the headmaster of the QI school, Sean, because that's exactly what we think. What, what what's, um, uh, Plato uh, used to say, um, early education should be um, a, a form of play. That way you will be better able to discover the child's natural bent. Yeah. So in a QI school, what you do is, until maybe as, as old as eight, you just muck about yeah you play games you put on shows you start a band you you do modeling whatever anyone like just you know fun really Cause and, and you watch the kids and you say that girl there is a mathematician she's mm. really good at that and that boy there he's going to be a painter and then you only you only um, 
examine uh, the children competitively on the subjects they already love. Yeah, absolutely. And everything else comes in stories. Yeah, know? absolutely. But, um, so, but we're at that stage now where you became a, a TV producer. So then how did the spit and image thing happen? Uh, well, I came, I came out of radio, and we all worked very, very hard. I produced 500 programmes in five years, so I really went at it. I was driven. I had no idea why. I still don't know why I worked so hard. And well, we had brilliant writers. to work is to live, isn't it? Well, I, it's also... You know, my, work be- my hobby became my work, and it was great fun. And I mm. was, you know, young and lots of energy. And so I got to know a lot of writers. We all got very good together. We had lots of people who were brilliant at voices. And when I went to telly... I thought, well, I want to do some political humour, and we've got all the voices, and we've got the words, but we don't have anyone who looks like the people. So we, should do, we should do puppets, that was the idea. Was that your idea? Yeah, in, in Not the Night News, me and Sean Hardy, the co-producer. And so I went to... I, we knew of uh, Fluck and Law's amazing work for the covers of magazines in Plasticine, so I went to see Roger, and I said, will you make some puppets for us? And he said, how much money you got? I said, 200 quid? And he said, go on, go, go, go away. And so over the next um, two or three years, several other people had the same idea. Um, and the guy who kick-started was a bloke called Martin Lambie-Nan, who is famous for inventing the, the Channel 4 logo. You know, that, that yeah, 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 revolves. Yeah. That was his idea. And he gave Roger and Peter 10 grand to try and build a puppet. And they spent that in, like, in a week, not getting anywhere. And then we had a bloke called Clive Sinclair. Remember him, yeah. the Sinclair C5? Can I just yeah. But in for a second, had it been commissioned at this point? No, 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 oh, no. Okay. It was two, Martin and Clive, both entrepreneurs with some money, and they'd seen this stuff and they wanted to get Roger and Peter to make puppets, and Roger and Peter didn't know how to do it. They had to learn on the job. And when I heard that they'd been given some money, I was round there like a rat up a pipe, and I said to Roger, I please. You've got to have me produce this because I'd done not that I got news by that stage. Which you know was you know when they talk about <coughs> um, programs for kids. Not that I got news was my program. Oh, was it? That was my playground program oh. that we used to quote. I've always said that that's another thing that's missing on telly now, isn't it? It's the show, the comedy show that tells you know teenage young teenage kids what to think. That's what you need, really. And there's yeah. usually been one. Most decades there's been one, but not now. But I love them because, like... And it wasn't, like, where I was going, yeah, yeah, politics. It was, like... It was just the mixture of no, everything. It, it tried... What we... There was... There was so many brilliant insights in Not the Nine O'Clock News because we... You know, we talked about the two Ronnies earlier. You were. I was trying to block that. <laughs> <laughs> OK, so we all watched the two Ronnies yeah. and we admired it. It was really, really good. But we looked at the two Ronnies and we thought, that is not the world we live in. We don't know anyone who wears a cravat and a blazer with gold buttons. Mm. You know, when we go to a pub, people are playing Asteroids and Space Invaders. They are not playing Shove Hapney, you know. What is Shove Hapney, for heaven's sake? I know. And so it's always the case in telly. It always drags about ten years behind reality, you know. Not that I can use an attempt to say, this is what people uh, really wear in the street. You know, Mel Smith's haircut, you know, yeah. the fact that Chris Langham didn't shave, that kind of stuff. It had a sort of dirty Camden lock kind of 70s was feeling about it. Was that an immediate it. hit? Well, it, it's, it was a bit bumpy in the first... Um, first few shows and you didn't appear in it at all no I, you, I was allowed i could have done yes. they, they that so was part of the deal because 
you know, I came from radio where I was making three shows a week, and I thought, tell you, be the same, except there are cameras, and it's not. It's ten mm. times more complicated. And he, I thought, I can't do everything. I've got to either, I've got to either produce it or be in it. I can't do both. Um, like, we, we, we keep this podcast for a half hour, so you're going to have to come in again. Blimey. We've barely touched the surface, but we've still got a couple of minutes. Because um, I, I just find that if you do 40 minutes people are kind of it's just too much so yeah. w- will you come in again i'd love to sean we'll, we'll take it up from where you where you stop but with spitting image what i want to know is so like because this was what, what we were talking about earlier on like this was groundbreaking in the sense that there had been nothing like it before did you like for a start fair play to central would take it on because that was a real big yeah risk. charles denton really should have at least a knighthood. That guy is unrecognised. He'd done so much for television. He'd done so many groundbreaking, innovative things. And we did a thing at the BFI to launch the arena film, Whatever Happened to Spitting Image, and he, he, we, we found him. He was down in Dorset somewhere. He's retired. He looked amazingly well, and I just had to big him up in front of this packed audience. And he basically got two standing ovations, because when people hear that without him, it would yeah. never have happened. And so, again, was that straight away a big hit? No, no. uh, Like Not the Nine O'Clock News, terrible reviews. Uh, None of my friends would talk to me for a few weeks, you know, think, oh, dear, Lloyd, he's laid an egg there, oh, dear, (laughs) oh, dear. And that's the thing. It's what's so funny when people, you get to my advanced stage and people go, oh, comedy legend, he's a comedy legend. You say, I wish you were there when I was struggling in the first series of Black Adder, Spitting Image, not the 9 o'clock news. But uh, that's such an amazing CV, John. You must be so proud. And, like, as I say, because we haven't even touched on the one-man show that you did, so we'll do that next time. I don't want to rush a load of things because I find it fascinating. So, but Spitting Image probably was the last programme to actually affect politics, would you say? I don't know. I, I'm sure that's not true. I mean, um, I think um, the work of Chris Morris and Armando Iannucci is pretty Im- important. Yeah, but I, I totally agree, but it didn't change... Like, you know, we, they didn't bring down governments. Oh, where, no, nor did we. Well, you kind of pretty much uh, messed up the Liberal Party. Uh, well, I, David Steele was at this BFI event the other day, and he, he says not, and I've always... Yeah, he's going to say that, though, isn't he? He's uh, a politician. Well, I don't know. I would have, if anything, been a Liberal voter in those days. Mm. So I wasn't about to do that. And no, but I'm not saying you did it for that, but I'm just saying because the way you portrayed them was like... Well, I know you did it with all of them, but, but weirdly you probably helped Thatcher in a weird way. Because I've, we, R- Roger and I, that's what we think. We yeah. think we, we shored up the Tory government. Absolutely. Because yeah. we gave people a safety valve instead of rioting. I mean, 15 million people is a hell of a big audience, even, mm. even for those That's, days. That is absolutely and, and And we were getting everybody... I mean, everybody saw that show. And, and I think instead of... You know, because they, they could laugh at Mrs Thatcher, they could laugh at Norman Tebbit rather than, you know, burning down their houses. But, but strangely, like, you, you're absolutely right, people would laugh at them, but people would still come away from that program going... Yeah, yeah, that's a, yeah, she's a real bitch, but quite a strong woman. Yeah, no, well, that's strong woman. And that is the funny thing, Sean, is that's the point about Steele. Steele and Owen, we both teased relentlessly. But For being Owen, sweet. Oh, hello, David. Uh, that's totally unfair. I'm half an inch taller than Neil Kinnock. And, and a sweet little yeah. David, and David Owen, very smooth like yeah. that. Uh, I, I met David Owen once, and he thought it was hilarious. The, the tough guys 
Tebbit used to love his puppet. All the people who are portrayed as tough think it's great. Mm. If you portray somebody as weedy, of course, to have a rather weedy attitude. Oh, it's not fair. Mm. It's not fair. And and that's the thing, you know, satire, it, it doesn't work unless it's sort of a kind of bent version of the truth. Yeah, well, well it's caricature, you know, that's yeah. what it was. And then it just enhances people, and I'm afraid, you know, there's... There's there's a certain you know a certain truth in it. it well, again, um, I think we should finish on this as uh, part one. Um, like again, <clears throat> I'm of the school that comedy should hold a mirror up to society, and that's probably why I didn't like the two Ronnies because even then, because like, what changed my life was uh, seeing Richard Pryor live, and like yeah. I'm, I'm in Fur House, <clears throat> a little place in Dublin, where I'm being lied to by my parents, yeah. teachers, priests, and then there's crack addict middle-aged guy from illinois was the first person who actually i went oh my god he's, he's speaking to me and that's what spitting everything so you should be so proud of that and uh, john Lloyd, thank you so much uh, for coming in but we will like as i say we'll bear that in mind we're just up to spitting image next time we'll talk about blackadder and not nine o'clock news qi and your live show thank <laughs> you so much john thank really you sure it's been it. fun this has been a dogs in the field production until next time see ya <laughs>